I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this week on the show, I'm joined by Mark Haslam, the 2019 NDA Deer Manager of the Year, to discuss his lessons learned and best practices for improving whitetail habitat in the Southeast. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today in the show, we are continuing to talk habitat. We're going to be discussing in particular southern whitetail habitat. Now, I think a lot we're going to discuss will be replicable and relevant to you if you're in the Midwest or the Northeast, but I'm giving a little extra love to those of you down in the South. My guest today, Mark Haslam, hails from the Southeast. He's got a family farm down in South Carolina, and today we're going to be talking about the story of this place. We're going to be talking about what he's learned in the many years since he began managing. You know, last week we talked to some guys who have just recently gotten into the land management game. They've been into it just a few years. Today with Mark, he's been doing this for 15 plus years, diving really deep into this and learning really the ups, downs, ins, and outs of what it takes to improve a piece of ground, manage a deer herd, and and enjoy it. So we're going to discuss everything from timber management, hinge cutting, clear cutting, planting pines, doing uh, dormant season burns, the, the pros and cons of food plots, getting natural food plots going, uh, sun hemp, conservation easements, uh, shoot, uh, who knows what else, a whole bunch else is hit on in this one. Mark's a great guy. He's actually going to be contributing a little bit more to Wired to Hunt for us in the future, so look for articles from him coming down the line over on the Wired to Hunt website as well, and uh, he's got a lot to offer. So that is my pitch for today's episode. Hope you're going to stick around. Hope you enjoy this one. If you've been out there working the ground already, I think this will be just what you need to inspire the next weekend or the next weeknight of work. So uh, thanks for being here. Let's get to my chat with Mark Haslam. All right, here with me now on the show, I've got Mark Haslam. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm, I'm glad to be here. 
Tell you what, you've got a good name right off the bat. I got to tell you that. <laughs> this is, it's always good to have a fellow Mark on this show. That hasn't happened too often. So <laughs> I like that. But uh, in all seriousness, uh, it's it's great to have you on here. I've I've been you know kind of following some of your work from afar over the years, Mark. I've I've seen how you've been doing a really great job of showcasing and sharing your family farm with other people and mentoring new hunters. I saw when he won the Deer Manager of the Year Award and thought to myself, man, he seems like someone who's very deserving of that. And I started reading more of your work and kind of just seeing what you're doing on social media. Um, just recently, I know we've we've gotten you starting to do a little bit of writing for us at Wired to Hunt. So uh, in short, this is, a, this is a conversation I'm really glad we're having. And uh, I know you've got a lot to offer. So, so thanks for making time to be here. What was, what was that experience like, Mark? Before we get into the real meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about, what was that experience like when you found out that you won the Deer Manager of the Year Award from the National Deer Association? Was that, was that something that you thought, oh, yeah, uh, this is coming my way someday? Or were you surprised by that? Um, absolutely shocked. Um, I, I, both my father and I did not see that coming. Um, we, we put on a, uh, at the time, a QDMA mentored hunt, uh, that previous fall. And we invited Joe Hamilton, the founder of QDMA, now the National Deer Association. Um, and Joe Hamilton is just a, a absolute national treasure. Um, and he saw what we were doing. He, he resides about an hour and a half from our farm and he saw what we were doing and um, in the longevity that we were doing things to the farm. And um, uh, I had no clue. Dad and I were planning to attend Whitetail Weekend uh, later that, I guess it'd be March of 2020. And um, when Joe started to read our uh, background while before giving the, the award, that was very surreal. Uh, absolutely was because for me, I'm a life. I was a lifelong QDMA member uh, going back to the mid late '90s, uh, back when we were in a hunting club, and so that was uh, very much uh, surreal and just sh- shock for me. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. And I guess that's a great place for us to start because I think that this this award you were given, I think, is representative of the work and the transformation that you guys put into place over the last 15 years or so on this, this farm that Joe visited with you down in South Carolina. From what I understand, your family, you guys acquired this place back in 2006, right? Can you, can you fill me in on, you know, what's, what's the family farm look like? What was this place like when you stepped foot on it so many years ago? Originally, it, it was a raw piece of land. And when I say a raw piece of land, um, it it, uh, it was being maintained by a forester. It, it, was, um, it was in a family that originally owned a, a much larger piece, had been passed down through many generations. I think there was about 12 or 14 different owners that had to sign off um, on the sale. They actually had to track some people down. But it was one of those classic, you know, examples of, you know, uh, a piece of property that was in a family for a long period of time. And none of the current owners had any um, 
uh, you know, ties to the land. They had a forester that was maintaining the forestry work and sending checks, you know, when they cut timber and they leased the hunting rights out to a hunting club. Um, so it was a very raw piece of land and, but that's what drew it, drew us to it. And it was a, a good location, uh, being somewhat centered between, uh, two very large, you know, two of the closer, uh, cities. So when you start to distance yourself from larger cities, you start to see the price per acre and the price of dirt dip down before it rises back up going to the next city. So what about the terrain and habitat? I mean, I, I know nothing about South Carolina. So can you paint a picture for me what this ground looks like? What kind of plant life? Is this swampy wet stuff? Is this high ground? Is this hilly? Is this big timber? What's What was the breakdown there? It, this would be considered the Midlands of South Carolina, uh, the, the lower western part of the state. It's right on the or just north of, of the low country area, which is mostly coastal plains. Uh, the, the coastal plains would run all the way from South Carolina, all the way to Alabama, Mississippi. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Very flat. I mean, I, I live in Savannah and we are at sea level right now. So it's uh, very flat, but we're right on the north side of that. And just when uh, the state starts to get a little bit of terrain uh, features, Slight rolling hills, elevation drops. I would call them hills living at sea level. Um, some of our elevation drops would be 10 to 15, 20 feet. Um, there are, we do have a couple Carolina bays, which uh, is a geological term. And the idea, the theory, which I think has been some substantial evidence, but there were some meteors way back when that uh, hit hit the ground and created some oval shaped depressions. And so those are called Carolina bays. We do have uh, several spring fed creeks, uh, some swamps, some bottomland, um, but it's primarily a pine farm. And that's what you see a lot in this, in this region of the Southeast. And the highest and best use would be uh, growing pine trees uh, with a good amount of acreage for uh, cultivated fields, farmland. Okay. So what about the wildlife population, the deer population? When you guys showed up there in 2006, what what did that like? Was this place flourishing already or were you starting with a little bit of a, a fixer-upper? It was certainly a fixer-upper. It, it was a great piece of property. It, it had been in a hunting club, I think, for several decades. Um, and with that, we did not know exactly what they were – what their goals were and what they were harvesting – uh, based on some of the information that we received and actually talking to them. And they, they, they still have a club in existence. I think they were, they weren't practicing, you know, all the fundamentals of the QDM model, quality deer management model, which is perfectly fine. I mean, that's legal to do, uh, but I don't know if they were letting young bucks walk. So we didn't know what we had as far as bucks. Definitely had some deer on the property um, very little turkeys and at the time, no quail, no Bob white quail, but you know, we just did not know what we had as far as the deer population. Okay. And then I guess, what were you hoping for? Like when you guys <laughs> stepped foot, like what were you hoping? What, when, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say here, what were your hopes and dreams and goals for this place? Cause it sounds like you were pretty serious into deer hunting already having been a QDM, a member for a long time. 
So when you stepped foot on that farm in 2006, was it, okay, we're going to go gung-ho doing everything we've learned about from reading the magazine and studying these things over the years? Or, or what was the plan when you guys began this journey? The plan was to take it very, very slow. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. The plan was to take it slow, but we ended up over time just taking it very, very slow. Originally, just step stepping foot the property. My my short term plan was to put some tree stands on some of the ag fields um, that were, they had peanuts or corn, and just to hunt and wait until I saw you know a one sixty inch come out. I just had you know we just didn't know what we had. We knew that the the deer population would be a lot different than what we were used to hunting um, on the coastal plain, uh, the coastal South Carolina, coastal Georgia. But we didn't know what what we had. The plan was just to take it slow, observe, um, and just right off the bat, keep doing what we were doing uh, in our hunting club um, for many, many years, and that is keeping good hunter observations. And that's still what we do, do to this day keeping a, a hunting observation log, everything you see um, on the stand, and a, then, of course, a harvest log data. Um, but we, I did shoot my first buck on the property, I think, to the third or fourth season. And that was just a, 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 a process of letting – I let a lot of bucks walk. In hindsight, I probably would have – knowing what I know now, I would have shot. But we just – we weren't really sure what we had and what we were. And when I say that we were basing that off some friends of ours that had similar type properties, but had been managing it and practicing the QDM model for a lot longer. Hmm. So we just didn't know if that was something that where we, we could kind of slip right into and tweak a couple things or it, and, and it ended up being a, a you know, a, a five to six year plan to kind of get it to where we were consistently seeing um, mature bucks on the stand and on trail camera, and then being able to maintain and observe and understand our deer herd. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said about, um, one of the things you carried over from your hunting club days, which was yeah. really good hunting or hunter observations and harvest observations and records. Can you walk me through, you know, what that actually means. How were you doing that? What kind of things were you taking note of? You know, was this in an actual journal that you carry with you everywhere? Like, how do you actually do this well? Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, you know, this is, this is just a classic, uh, QDM fundamental practice. And that is, you know, your, your, your hunter observation on the stand and your harvest data log. So, you know, this goes back to our hunting club and I the earliest I can remember being there is in kindergarten just wearing one of those insulated old school camo jumpsuits where <laughs> yes. I was like a Michelin man and I, I couldn't even like move my arms. The good old days. Um that's right. Um so but what we you know nowadays there there are apps uh for hunt clubs where you can sign in and sign out on your on your phone. But we had a clubhouse and there was a um a little bulletin board um uh, right there, the clubhouse where you sign in and you, you know, you, you put a magnet on the aerial map of where you're going to hunt, you put your name in, and then you sign out. We sign out, you put what you saw, or if you shot something, uh, at the skinning shed, you would take the live weight. Um, we weren't necessarily doing all these things at the hunt club, but we had tweaked it to where, um, at our farm, we were, you know, 
at the end of the hunt, writing everything we saw as far as whitetails. I'm breaking it down within fawns. Um, you know, if it's, if it's a skilled hunter or a hunter that we feel like knows what they're looking at, we will put button bucks or doe fawn. If not, just simply fawns, does, and then antlered bucks. And depending on, you know, if someone's confident, you know, what particular buck they saw, six point, eight point, maybe it's a two-year-old eight point, maybe it's a four-year-old eight point. And then um, the harvest law. And this is harvest law. I mean, both are an imperative, but the harvest log is very, very key. And everyone doesn't have a skinning shed on their property. Everyone doesn't have a scale on the property. So some people take their deer to a processor. And back in the day, before we had a skinning shed, you know, I would wait at the processor until he or she weighed my deer so I could get the weight and the jawbone because I did not want to leave and potentially them not weigh it. Um, but when you have that data, here are some of the highlight bullet points that you can get from it. From the hunter observation, you'll see at the, at the end of the season, and this is what we do right now, you know, after the season rolling into the following fall, is you'll, you'll get a breakdown as far as how many does you saw on average per hunt, how many bucks you saw on average per hunt, um, your buck to doe ratio. I mean, that's, you know, we, we use a, uh, an online service. It's very inexpensive and you upload all this information. What's it called? Uh, the website that we use is called deermanage.com. Okay. And it'll, you just upload all all the data and it breaks down. It it gives you the estimated bucks to the ratio, which is that alone is one of the top uh, points to focus on. And and, and one sidebar that and why it's important was because after about 10 or 10 or so years, when we had, we really had the farm fine tuned, um, we were starting to get a lot of bucks on camera. We had, we were growing bucks and we were seeing bucks in person and, we went through that phase where we were hunting more bucks than we were regulating the does. And our doe numbers, our doe, doe harvest dipped down. And what we saw was our buck to doe ratio shot up way out of whack. And so for the past number of years, we've been just hammering the does trying to catch up. That's why that's important. You'll also get the fawn recruitment. You know, what's your fawn recruitment like? And that's why taking those uh, you know, jotting down, you know, fawns, that's, that's important. You know, people are concerned about coyotes and, and, you know, trapping, or do you have adequate, uh, fawn bedding? Um, and then also, for instance, if you're seeing one antlered buck for every 10 does, that could be a problem. If you're seeing one antlered buck for every 15 plus or 15 or 20 does, that's a major problem. You've got way too many does. And sure, you might still kill some large bucks, but your buck to doe ratio is way out of whack. And there's, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably understand what that can cause as mm-hmm. far as the rut and then fawns dropping. And then with the uh, with the with the harvest log, you're extracting extracting the jawbone, which is, you know, besides sending off the jawbone to get tested, the teeth. I mean, that's one of the top ways of actually aging a deer, taking the live weight. And then for instance, like if, if, if it's a doe, was it lactating? Was it lactating in September? Well, that's common. That's good. Was it lactating in November? That's a lot longer. If you're, if it's, if a doe is lactating in, in November, December, that can tell you some things about your rut and about the buck doe ratio. 
Um, and that's just an excellent way to keep track of your of your deer population. Are they are the weights trending up or trending down? There's just mm-hmm. there's a there's a lot of different things you can and then you can look at there's all kinds of data. Francis Moon. So this website will factor the moon in and it'll show you uh, how many deer on average you're seeing with every moon phase, um, temperature, wind, everything like that. Hmm. Has that has that level of analysis kind of highlighted any kind of correlation with the moon or anything? I mean, this is just like a, a pet project favorite of mine, always talking about these things and looking into that. And, you know, one of the big pieces of pushback along the lines for most of that is that there's not a lot of peer-reviewed research that can point to a connection between any of those factors like the moon, temperature, barometric pressure, and deer movement. But so many hunters feel like there is. Have you seen anything line up with that, uh, with your own data? I can send you the data and I can, and I'd be willing to post on social media, but there is absolutely no correlation whatsoever uh, between hunter observation and the the moon phase deer movement. There's just not, it's, there is no change whatsoever with the moon phase. You know, I personally, I was smiling when when you brought this up. (laughs) I personally just get a chuckle out of the moon. I, I I feel like a lot of people just, they, they, they tend to hunt uh, when they feel like they have, you know, some people, some people can pick and choose when they hunt based Mm -hmm. on whatever condition they like. And some people, Maybe like you and me that have a couple of kids and a job and a, and a wife and a household. And we, we, we hunt, we, excuse me, we hunt when we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's typically, uh, you know, without even looking at data, the best times to hunt and the best places to hunt and when to hunt are going to be early or places where there's been very little pressure. Yeah. And, and yeah. So in, in my opinion. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to rewind the tape a little bit to to where a lot of this began because it seems like you know taking the 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 level of detail that you're looking at things, the the records you're keeping that that must have really helped inform so many of the decisions you guys made along the way since you had real data to look at. Uh, but I'm sure that especially in those early years, you had some false starts. Um, you know, on my back 40 project, for example, a few years ago, I had plenty of false starts when I was getting into this whole world of kind of taking that next step in land management. I'm kind of curious what those looked like for you guys. Can you, if you thought about those first, gosh, five years, maybe, does anything stand out as, as some of the biggest mistakes you made in those early years or something that you just really got wrong? Um, does anything come to mind? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, y- yes, to answer your question, yes, there's definitely a lot. Uh, some items that come to mind would be um, uh, yeah, planting trees. Uh, we would we bought some fruit trees early on, and that that weren't really even suitable for that area, uh, South Carolina. We planted some oak trees. Uh, a lot of sawtooth oaks, which a lot of people, you know, now there's a little bit of pushback as far as planting those. Um, I still like them, but we, 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 we planted some of these trees far too close together, did not space them out, um, far enough. Um, food plots, 
you know, um, we weren't doing soil samples originally. And before we really opened up some of the property, we were squeezing food plots in wherever we could because the previous hunters were not planting food plots. There was a farmer. Uh, there was a couple hundred acres of, of farmland. So you had that uh, to hunt over or to hunt around. But we were squeezing food plots a lot in like on fire breaks or roads that we didn't use as much or little fallow areas. And, and a lot of those areas did not get sunlight, very little sunlight. Um, and that was that was primarily a that was a bust because you buy seed and you and, and you plant it. We weren't we weren't spraying um, for weed control. We weren't doing the uh, soil samples, and then you're not you're not really monitoring really what 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 comes up. Is it weeds popping up, or is it plant that you that you plant with a seed? Um, and then a uh, stand location. Um, you know, some of the stand locations we had early on were around roads. Um, and that was just a factor of not really having the time yet to open the property up. But sometimes hunters, and this is what we were guilty of, we put deer stands where we thought the best places would be based on just our preferences, but we weren't necessarily basing it on where the deer are. How do the deer use our property? Where are they coming from? Where are they bedding? Where are they going? Um, you know, not basing the stand location, the stand setup based on the deer movement. We're basing it on, you know, what worked yeah. best for us. I think that's something that uh, a lot of folks, myself included, are guilty of. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready 
not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So, so plenty of mistakes along the way. What, what was, if you could, if there's anything that, that kind of fits this, what was the impetus for positive change? Like, if was there anything you can point back to? where things all of a sudden started to click? Did you change something with your food plots and all of a sudden, oh, now things are coming together? Or did you open up these new roads or new access points to allow you to hunt deeper into the property and then all of a sudden that was what changed things? Was there any big epiphany or light switch moment, you know, where you kind of hit a fork in the road and all of a sudden your results started changing? Was there any kind of line in the sand where all of a sudden everything was different after that? I would say to answer that question was probably the first um, logging contract we had the farm, and the first um, first time we had some uh, a, a timber crew in the farm to cut pine trees. To the first cut was just a thin. It was actually a combination to thin some trees, and what that did was open up some of the canopy, get some more sunlight in, um, and then. They also created some loading decks. So when you cut pine trees, there's a site usually that they clear cut, like a you know a, a smallish site where they clear cut first, and then that's where they're loading the timber. That's where they're the machines are dragging the timber, and then 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 they're, then they're loading it on the semi trucks. So when that's done, what we did on those old loading decks was to clean it up. We stumped it. And then cleaned up all, all the leftover debris, burned every, you know, burned the leftover debris, and then converted those into food plots. Um, that was a huge change for us because that gave us an actual smallest field that may be like a quarter acre or half acre to plant a food plot. Um, and then with the thinning, it, it, that allowed uh, expose some sunlight, open the canopy up to get more sunlight uh on the ground, disturb the ground, and get some natural growth. Um, and then combined with that, they also widened the road for us. They cut some trees along the roads, widened the roads better. Uh, we did some did some road work. When you wide the roads, especially in the south, it helps dry the roads out. It, it, it helps to you know, dry them out. The sun hits it. It's not as muddy. Um, that was probably just the start of, of being involved with the forestry work. And then that next cut, which wasn't that far after, we ended up clear cutting uh, two sections that were very close to each other that had some ice damage. And it was one of those where we could either just let that timber stand be um, and it's not going to produce as well as it should because there's some ice damage or clear cut it. And at the time, we knew the best option for our income uh, to maximize income on that pine stand, uh, but we were... I was I was not looking forward to a clear cut at all. 
And after they clear cut those sections right, right in the middle of the property, they weren't all that big. They're probably two sections that maybe equaled about 50 or 60 acres. Um, it just looked like a wasteland. I mean, it looked like a bomb went off. Um, but over the next couple of years, being able to hunt around that clear cut after it was planted with pine trees, hunting around it, and then when it thickened up to become just an incredible whitetail bedding thicket, which was what pine thickets do when, when you replant, that's when things really started to click with me as far as how we can manipulate the landscape to not only do the forestry work, but then also to better the wildlife habitat and to better the huntability of the farm. Hmm. So I read somewhere that you believe that timber management is now the, the single greatest tool you have in your goals towards growing mature bucks and maintaining a healthy deer herd. Can you, can you expand a little bit on what you just, on what you just told me there about why you find this to be such a powerful tool? Yeah. So, you know, the South is very heavy with, with, with tree farms, pine farms. And it's exactly what it said. I mean, it's exactly what I, what I said, I mean, it's you, you have an inventory of, of trees that's your crop, and that's what you're growing for, you know, 25, 30 plus years, depending on the species. And, you know, a lot of people, some people might not do much TSI, timber stand improvement. They might not do much work at all um, on their farm. But some of the some of the things that you can do to blend, there's a way that you can blend the forestry work to grow trees for income, for profit, and then maintain uh, a healthy wildlife habitat. Um, I've already mentioned TSI, timber stand improvement, uh, thinning. I've already mentioned I've already mentioned thinning. I, I, when pine trees are the age of about fifteen or sixteen years, um, they are very much tight. The ground cover is going to be bare. It's going to be a layer of pine straw. There's really not much going on to it, but you can thin it about 15 or 16 years. Once you thin that pine stand, you, you open up the canopy, lower the basal area, which means more sunlight is getting in. Um, that sunlight hits the dirt, and you will disturb the native seed bank. Um, and what we've done, the pine stands, is actually thin it a second or a third time. So the more you thin it, the more open it gets. And when you incorporate prescribed fire, uh, which I know can be, it was definitely a daunting task for us to uh, to do to do the first couple times. But prescribed fire, what that what you're able to do for anyone that's not familiar with it is with pine trees. Very quickly, you you end up with a thick carpet of pine straw, and there's very little vegetation breaking through that carpet of pine straw. Do 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 a prescribed fire, burn it off, and if it's done pretty clean, you'll you'll have ex pure exposed dirt. With exposed canopy, sunlight gets in there, and you'll disturb that that native seed bank, and you'll end up with just incredible amount. Depending on when you burn uh, in the dormant season, you'll end up with a lot of um, a lot of grasses, uh, forage, browse. Uh, in our area, it's American Beautyberry, Blackberry, uh, Partridge Pea uh, for turkeys, Goldenrod. Um, pokeweed, all of that forage in, 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 in plants you're seeing being covered now that's, that's, that's really making a big push for that holistic 
land management, um, clear cuts. I talked a minute, a minute ago about about clear cutting sites, and I, and I know that can be daunting. But if you if you try to if your goal your goal in my opinion should be to avoid the monoculture on your pine farm. And so what we've done after we had those two smallish uh, clear cut sites was what I like to call is to checkerboard the property to where you clear cut maybe five to maybe 50 acre blocks, anywhere from five to 50 acres. And you, you try to just checkerboard your property, have, have a diversity. So you have a pine thicket and after a clear cut, depending on the soil, those pine trees you know, in the South, we have a very, very long growing season. Our green up started at the end of February. It's been going crazy throughout March, and it goes all the way to the first frost, which is about the first week in November. So our pine trees go very, very quickly, and those clear-cut replant sites will um, thicken up for, for, for outstanding deer bedding and deer thickets and fawning cover and nesting cover for turkeys within about one to three years, depending on the soil. And then it'll last anywhere from six to 10 years, again, depending on the soil. You know, the darker, low, lower-lying soil, the probably thicker it's going to get. And when deer bed in there, it, it, is, it is absolutely killer hunting. And that's some of, the, some of my favorite hunting to do, especially early season in August and early September when it's, uh, it's 100 degrees outside during the day. But the coolest part of the day every day is at night. And so if you know where the deer are feeding at night in ag field or maybe maybe a, a food plot system, um, a lot of times what I like to do is to climb right on the edge of that young pine thicket and uh, a mature pine stand that's been thinned, it's been burned. So, you know, you can get 20, 30 feet up as high as you want. And with that vegetation that's been disturbed and that native seed bank that's that you've burned um, or if you had a thin and it grows up, that vegetation can grow by the fall anywhere from two to five feet tall. And deer will feel very comfortable slipping through their browsing and making their way back to their bedding site. Um, and so that, you know, pine farms might have a stigma as far as being like a, you know, a wildlife wasteland. But if, if you blend these management practices, it can absolutely be a wildlife haven, in my opinion. So, so, with these clear cuts that you're doing, the, the checkerboard clear cut, am I right that you are contracting these clear cuts out to uh, to loggers to do this commercially? Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And then, so you, you contract that out. They come in, they clear it out, et cetera, et cetera. They make, they do everything you just described. Do you do the replanting or do you have someone or does somebody else come in and replant them? And, and are you replanting just as wildlife openings at that point or are you replanting in rows for future harvest? So we would contract the actual uh, timber sale uh, for the clear cut. And then we have been doing most of the chemical sprays. So after it's cut, um, you know, let's say we're let's say we cut sometime this spring or summer. We would go in uh, late summer, early fall, and spray it, and and, and just spray the ground to, just to kill off all the all the volunteer uh, sprouts, you know, hardwoods, sweet gums, and, and then other volunteer pine other volunteer pine trees, kill those off, and then we, we would replant, contract the work uh, to be replanted pine trees, 
the next dormant growing season. So January, February of next year. Um, we, I do have plans uh, for our next timber sale. I'm going to clear cut a section and I'm going to let it grow up wild. Um, just volunteer, just, just, just let it grow up wild. That was a suggestion that Joe Hamilton had to us uh, a couple of years ago when he first came to the farm was, you know, he was, le- he was looking at some of the areas where it was probably taking deer a little bit longer to get to as far as, you know, to feed. Um, and they, they wouldn't get to those areas until after dark. So he just suggested clear cut it and then just let it grow wild. And so, and so by doing that, you're not growing pine trees, you know, you're not maximizing the timber production, but we're going to let it grow up wild. And then he said to not let it see its third birthday. So after three years, burn it or mow it down and just start over again. So keep setting back and keep it in that early secessional stage. Exactly. Yep, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So you've got the checkerboard of clear cuts that you're doing. You've got some thinning throughout the pine stands. Uh, is there any other timber related projects that you guys have tried over the years? Do you, have you dabbled in, in hinge cutting or, or anything girdling, anything else like that? And how has any of that worked for you? We do a lot of girdling and a lot of hack and squirt, probably more hack and squirt. Um, sweet gum trees are prevalent down here, um, and they you will fight sweet gums. I mean, we've been fighting sweet gums for a very long time. They sprout very quickly. They grow very quickly, and they offer really nothing for for wildlife. Um, I have done some hinge cutting, not, not much. Um, I I did a number of sections last summer, and I really didn't see I, – I, I did not uh, notice – I haven't noticed much sign deer activity around them. Um, but at the same time, is that we have a lot of, in my opinion, better bedding sites. So, you know, I, I don't know if I, – I, I don't think they were choosing to use them, and maybe I wasn't. Maybe I didn't have them in the best locations. I'm not sure. Um, other timber projects we do, something we've been doing for a number of years now, is early successional disking, light disking with a harrow. Um, and that's something you can do down here anytime from December to about March. And all you need is a tractor or a harrow, or maybe you can even, if you can hook up a harrow to uh, a four-wheeler or, or ATV, but you lightly disk. The ground surface just barely, just enough, just enough to, to disturb the soil, and it's very similar to a prescribed fire. You're disturbing that native seed bank, and as long as those areas ha- get sunlight, you'll see those same uh, native plants grow up that I mentioned before. We've done a lot of those in the timber where there's maybe a fire break um, that gets some sunlight, uh, maybe some roads. Uh, fallow fields. I, I mean, I would implore everyone listening just to do that. I mean, you can still do it now. Go out and lightly disc some areas that maybe you wouldn't touch with anything else and just observe what happens to it. Observe what grows up, what pops, and then may, and then pay attention to what's being eaten, what's being snipped off. Um, that's an excellent way of creating uh, a border around ag fields or in a food plots if you don't have the means to plant. 
Yeah, you're you're just adding diversity and uh, and switching things up, adding those edges, and I got to believe that's almost always a win-win. Absolutely, yes. I wanna I wanna go back to one more thing on the timber side of things, um, because I'm gonna make an assumption here for other people based on an experience I've had, which is that getting some of this larger scale timber work done, it seems like. Um, it, it, it seems like there's a number of hoops to go through to actually make it happen that many of us maybe don't know how to go through. Um, for example, we've got a little family farm property up in northern Michigan, 40 acres, a lot of timber on it. And and I know that we could benefit from getting some of these trees out of there and opening, getting some openings, et cetera. We had a forester come out and take a look at things. And, and he said, you know, this can go, this can go, this can go. Uh, it'd be great if you could get this out, uh, but his concern was that it was too small a scale to likely get somebody out there willing to take the time to work on a project of that size. And so, in the years since, I've kind of, kind of taken a couple different stabs at trying to get people to come out. But maybe I don't know what I'm doing, or maybe I was talking to the wrong people. Uh, but I bring all that up to ask you what has that process been like for you in contracting out work? You know, what does that all entail? If somebody's listening and they want, they want to see what opportunities they have to manage their timber, who do you talk to? How do you get that process started? What have you learned in the years since uh, about how to do that better, how to work with a forester or a logging or a logger or anyone like that? You know, what does that look like? What are some of the best practices? I would certainly suggest anyone listening to, Connect with a forester and, you know, unless you, unless someone has a background in forestry work and it's not necessarily, I mean, it's kind of like doing your taxes, you know, I mean, you could probably figure out how to do your taxes and file if you wanted to. Um, There's ways you could figure it out and do it, but some people would rather just hire a CPA and have it done the right way. Why is because a CPA might be able to save you some money, maybe some tax exemptions. So, you know, going with a professional, you may, there very well could be some benefits to it. Um, So I would definitely say connect with a forester. And on top of that, they're going to have connections to the timber buyers. They're going to have connections to the local mills where, um, you know, where the timber's going, you know. So there are some benefits there. Um, But you also definitely want to connect with with a forester you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously are into hunting. So you want to find a forester that, that can that can blend and has a wildlife background of some sort and that gets what your goals are. So you don't necessarily need to, you know, get a forester to do whatever he or she wants to do. Connect with them, set your goals, tell them what you want to do and prioritize things. If it's maximizing tree production, then then, you know, that's what it needs to be if you're trying to blend Tree, tree production in, in wildlife habitat, there's things you can do. Um, right now, it can be challenging to get a timber contract uh, signed and then get the crew on site. There, there, there are so much. I was reading something the other day. I mean, there, there are decades of, 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 of trees on the stump, a decade's worth of supply of trees on the stump that are ready to be cut. Uh, there was actually an article in the Wall Street Journal about this, I think maybe last year in 2020, about 
the amount of uh, people, mostly in the southeast, that were planting pine trees back in the 80s and the early 90s as a nest egg, as a retirement. And a lot of those are coming up for harvest. And we had a lot of mills and a lot of timber mills in, in our area of the state and Georgia that closed down during the recession, during the Great Recession. Um, you know, 2009 to 2012 area range. So when those mills closed, we're less we're left with uh, fewer places for our timber to go. And so there's there's basically a lot of supply inventory on the stump right now. So I say this um, because if you have a smaller property or even like even like our property, we're not looking to clear cut large sections. We're looking to clear cut smaller sections, which that might not be. If you want to clear cut 50 acres, that might not be attractive for a timber buyer. But if you can lump in maybe a thin, maybe, maybe you do a third thinning on a pine stand and then you tie in um, uh, a clear cut site that might be attractive for them or. I recently had a had a conversation about uh, the power of co-ops, the power of wildlife co-ops, um, and you know we all know the value of that. Talking with your neighbor as far as deer management, um, what they're seeing and what you're shooting. But another benefit of that is 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 timber work. You're not going to lump every everything together on one contract, but you can absolutely pull your properties together and you know approach you know, have your forester or approach a timber buyer with it and saying, you know, we got properties A, B, and C that we like to lump all, all together. And that's much, much more attractive for, for the timber crew to be able to move into one general area and to post up and to cut because it costs them so much money uh, to move the machines around and the equipment uh, from property to property. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, so let's say we've, we've tried thinning, we've done clear cutting, we, we've done a number of these different timber things as you've done. You, it sounds like one of the next steps you had was adding prescribed fire to the mix, burning out that understory underneath those thinned, you know, pine stands. Um, what have you learned over the years about that? What's worked best when it comes to fire? What are you really achieving with that too? With fire, I think what, what works best, what's worked for us is to carve the property up into sections. Uh, we carve it up each track in about three sections, and we burn one section every year. And so each section is being burned once every three years. Um, there's no plan, one management plan that's going to fit you know, every property. You need to, just like everything else, after you burn, up, up, observe what what happens? Observe what grows, what comes up, and what the deer are actually eating. Um, we found that burning a section uh, once every three years is is adequate to to produce uh, just killer forage, and then also it, it it'll still leave places thick, thick briar patches for bedding. Um, and so, even even my burning and some of these thick you know brambles and briars those are excellent bedding sites and then you, and then when you combine that with uh, the pine thickets we've got plenty of bedding um, you know me personally if I had to make a decision if for some reason I had to make a decision on whether or not I could plant the best food plot seed every year or to burn every year 
and I can only choose one option, I would I would burn every year as opposed to planting uh, food plots. I still like food plots, but as far as the bang for the buck, there's no question what you get um, in, the, in the diversity that you get from prescribed fire. So a lot of the bucks I've killed, I mean, the, the majority of them is going to be in pine stands that have been burnt, been burnt, and I'm climbing right on the edge of that pine thicket. And so they're either going, they're either going back to bed or they're coming out of bed. Um, and they hit that next block of a thin pine stand that has, like I said, two to two to five feet tall vegetation and browse, and they're going to mill through there. And they're going to mill their way back at first light to go to bed, or they're going to step out and kind of mill through there and take their time and feed and browse and make, and make sign and whatnot until they get to that destination food plot that's an acre or two wide that they really don't want to step out until dark because they know what's there. Am I right that you need to get the timing right on when you would do a burn like that to achieve that kind of natural food plot transition zone in a stand of pines like that? Like when, when are you doing that burn? How are you doing that burn to achieve that two to five feet of, of kind of attractive growth while still in the pines? Um, you're looking at anywhere in the dormant season starting in January, January to about March is when pri- most people do it. Uh, we usually run into a situation where a lot of our land is very wet uh, in, in January and sometimes February. It's just cold. It's wet. It's a little too wet to burn. Um, but, you know, I had, had a conversation with uh, Dr. Marcus Lashley with the University of Florida. He's he's like the go to uh, pres- prescribed fire biologist. Um, you know, I had a long conversation with him and, you know, burning this time of year, January through March, you're going to get a lot, a, a lot of grasses. And, but that foliage, those, that forage is going to, deer like that young, tender, succulent uh, sprouts, like when they eat briars or when they eat the, you know, devil's walking stick which I don't know if you'll have that up uh, in Michigan or not, but it's mm-hmm. it, it's very thick. I mean, they're not eating it when it's mature. They're eating the young, the young sprouts, you know, of the briars and everything else, poison ivy. And so if you burn, let's say in February, a lot of that is going to be a little too, they're not going to hit it in the summer. So what Dr. Lashley was saying was that you should really burn if you want that excellent, uh, forge throughout the summer, which for us is the stress period. You know, I was, you, you might be around snow right now. I was talking to someone in yep. in New York. Snowing today. That's, yeah, that's just crazy. I mean, I was talking to a guy <laughs> in New York State on Friday, and he's, he's dealing with snow. I mean, we, we had snow stick January of 18, and then we had snow stick, I think, <laughs> like 2011 and then 1988. So, oh, man. Um, so like our stressful period is not the winter. Now it certainly is, but our stressful period for, for, for whitetails is the summer. You know, it's 90 to hundred degrees. Of course, a little bit cool in the shade, but there's extreme heat. We could be, there could be a drought. Um, there's a high level of insects, bugs, and then you get with the heat, um, you get the, the stress in, in the, in the demands of the antler production, which there's so much stress on the body f- 
for the bucks to grow those antlers every single year. And then you have the lactation, you know, the final stages of the doe, the, the, the mother doe's gestation period. And then she's got to produce that quality milk. So, um, he was going, I'm rambling, but Dr. Lasher was saying to, to meet those summer demands, you really ought to burn late spring and, you know, late spring. And then you have those, that fresh tender succulent, uh, sprouts from all these plants growing back throughout the summer hmm. and late summer, early fall to, to meet those demands. If you were to burn, excuse me, late summer, early fall, you would get a lot more hardwoods, um, a lot more forbs to grow. If I had that right. Um, we have never done a late summer, early fall or early fall burn. I would like to just to be able to have an experiment to see what happens. Yeah. But for us, it's usually it's just timing. It's extremely hot. And that's another animal in itself to burn that time of year. Um, and we're also usually gearing up for uh, deer season at that point. But to, to answer your questions, you do produce different results on burning in the dormant season or the growing season. You bring up an interesting, an interesting point, which is, you know, how your main stress period that you're trying to prepare for is the summer compared to maybe up here where it's late winter, right? Um, yeah. I'm curious. You must hear from a lot of people, whether you're listening to podcasts or reading articles or books or anything like that about land management habitat improvement that's coming from a northerner's perspective or the midwest um i gotta believe a lot of things like what you just mentioned simply are different than what you're dealing with down there in the southeast is there anything else that really stands out to you is is something that you're dealing with or that you have to do differently that's that's dramatically counter to the conventional wisdom coming out of the midwest or some of these other places from a habitat uh, yeah. management perspective um, yeah, a little bit. I, I could probably rattle off a, a couple dozen ways how we're different than like Iowa, for instance. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, once some, some top level points would be one, I've already mentioned it, but our growing season is much, much longer. Um, and a lot of times in the Southeast, if you look at it, if you look at it at a, an aerial map, it's just going to be one massive green block. Um, you're not necessarily going to see distinctive land features. You're not going to say, oh, well, that's a funnel. That's a pinch point. That's probably where they're bedding. That's where they're feeding. It's very, very, you really need boots on the ground to be able to look to see because you'll see a, you'll see green pine trees, but you don't know, you might not know really what it looks like. Are they bedding in there? Is it just is it just too open? So it can be a little challenging to figure out how the deer are using your property in the south because they can bed everywhere. Bedding is something that is significantly different. When, when people talk about you know finding buck, buck beds and hunting buck, buck beds, that's not really, in my opinion, something in the southeast unless you've got a very unique property. Um, when I talk about deer bedding, I'm really referring to deer bedding and to where it's, you know, does, bucks, you know, and, and, and there are some areas where bucks tend to bed, but it's usually like a general area, um, like a, you know, a, a young thicket, might be five or 50 acres where they're bedding somewhere in there, um, or it could be in a swamp. We have, you know, 
some swamp systems where they bed, but it, it, it can be because it's just so thick in most places. Um, when you burn, I would mentioned this before, you'll, you'll generate a lot of, a, a lot of thickets that deer eat, but they also bed in them. So when you're laying out your property and looking at the design as far as access, where do you want your stand? Where do you want to hunt? You know, of course we have the permanent stands, but I traditionally hunt mobily. Um, and that was another turning point for me when I started to do that more. But when I'm hunting myself or if I'm putting out a guest or trying to figure out where they're going to hunt, I look at more so of like, where is their scent going? How are they walking in? Like, where are they parking? How are they getting to their spot? How are they walking in and where their scent is blowing? Because with the Southeast being so dense and being a, a very high deer density, and, and that's something else, another difference than like the Midwest, we typically have a higher deer density. So there's deer everywhere and they're bedding everywhere. So when you go to hunt, you're going to educate deer. You're going to spook deer. Um, you're going to educate deer that you didn't even know was there. But that's another major factor as far as thinking about your access. And it's not so much you know, hunting pressure, like pulling the trigger, but just simply going into the woods and walking. I look at more, I think more about like leaving at dark when you're walking in an hour before sunrise at dark, or you're leaving at dark, there's deer all around you. You might not see them or hear them, but they're, but they're watching you and paying attention to you. Um, so it's, it's just a lot to, um, it, it's a lot to, you know, try to put together. Oh yeah. Do you, does, does that factor in to any of your land projects at all? Just that challenge of, you know, deer in much of the Southeast being able to live anywhere, being able to bed anywhere. Do you ever try to strategically plan where you want some of these cuts or where you don't want some of these cuts to allow for any kind of safe place for you to access or exit or anything like that? Or is it just a, a lost cause? I know it's not. I, that's a that's an excellent point you made, and I and I can give you a real example that we're doing right now. Um, we got a track that um, the the last owner uh, was a timber company, and before they sold it, they cut the majority of the pine trees, most of them at least, and they cut it years before they sold it, and it was just left to grow up wild those clear cut sections. So. They were, it was pretty thick sections growing up. I mean, just a mix of volunteer pine trees and hardwoods and everything else. Um, but we were left in kind of a transition time where it was if you let an area grow up in the southeast wild, you're going to get a lot of hardwoods, it's, it's going to be mixed, but you either have to just let it let it roll for a lot longer periods for the for that for that for that growth to become timber to become merchantable commercial timber that someone would want to buy for pulpwood or saw timber um, or pole saw. And that's going to take a lot longer. Or do you just bite the bullet and clear and, and clear cut it? But we were at a stage where it wasn't worth anything. I mean, I, we were trying to get a fuel chipper in there to, you know, mulch the material for fuel chips, which there is a market for that, but there's just not many, fuel chip crews out there and we end up just having to get a crew just to simply mulch it down very rough um basically push it over 
mulch down the stumps. I mean, these are trees that weren't even considered pulp wood. Um, and then we've already gone in those areas to 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 replant. Uh, we've already planted pine trees, and I we were sitting on that project for many years, so we just didn't know how to tackle it. Um, but what I'm looking forward to, to doing is that's very close, pretty much very flush to a creek swamp um, that I like to hunt. And if anyone follows some of my content, like on Instagram, I post a lot of, um, I've got some, I've got some trail cameras down the swamp and I keep it on video mode, mm-hmm. which I can get some go great videos. That. Yeah. Well, thank you. And so that's, um, I, there's a number of bucks that bed down that swamp every single year. I mean, I'll get a number of mature bucks down there, but it's been a very, it's been, to say the least, I mean, you can also look at my Instagram feed and tell us a challenge to kill them. It's a challenge to harvest them because they're in the swamp that has a, it's fairly, you know, narrowish. It's not, you know, it, it's just not incredibly wide, but there's a 15 to 20 foot drop off on both sides that, that, you know, drop down to it. So the thermals are crazy uh to hunt in the swamp and then you have the fact that it is a flowing creek so you do have the wind currents through there long story short it's extremely hard it's been hard for me maybe not hard for you to come you could probably roll one and kill them all but (laughs) i don't um, think so but it in what i'm describing that area is like if you were to see a a deer to harvest it's going to either be on a road or a fire break that we've created or a food plot because most of the timber wasn't old enough to really open up and thin and to be able to climb over it and be able to burn over it. Some of it was, some of it wasn't. So by clear cutting that section, we, we have now opened it up and it's going to be, I think very, very good for the next couple of years to hunt those, hunt those edges. Deer love edges. Um, we're going to get a lot more sunlight, a lot native, you know, vegetation growing and then in a couple of years, it's going to be good to hunt over a clear cut, um, especially the first couple of years when it's not quite a uh, warm season bedding. It's not quite tall enough and shaded enough for deer to bed in when it's hot, but it'll be good cold season bedding for them to go out and bed uh, during the cold weather and be in the sun. Hmm. Man, there's a, there's a lot yeah. of different factors at play, aren't there? <laughs> Keep you keep you busy for a very long time. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. 
No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Something I really like about this, we've talked for an hour, and we have almost not touched on food plots one time. Which is which is kind of rare in a land management conversation. <laughs> yeah. So many people want to want to jump to food plots, and like that's that's just like the sexy kind of topic in the land world. That's that's seemingly the one that delivers the most results right out the gate. Some people assume it's the easiest, uh, but many times it's not. Um, nonetheless, food plots are a part of what you guys do, though, too, right? Um, what what does your food plot? kind of practice look like on this property now i know you mentioned in the beginning you had some struggles with not having enough open space you mentioned how they're opening up those logging pads you're expanding those little kind of hidey hole food plots but now you know almost 20 years later how do food plots fit into this overarching strategy you guys have now to to work in the land what we've done um for a number of years now was that we we have maintained some of the smaller food plots, maybe a quarter or like a half acre. And those are more of kill sites, um, you know, where, where it's not it's like kill sites. It might sound barbaric, but it, it the idea behind that term, in my opinion, is or from my understanding, I should say, is that it's not enough uh, acres to you're not really you're not feeding the deer as far as nutrition. Um, you know, they're not really getting much out of the, the, the nutrition side. You're just attracting them in to be able to, you know, harvest them. Um, we still maintain those, but, but we've increased the size of our main food plots. Uh, there was, there's a nice, uh, it was a formal, it was, had, had always been used by the farmer, um, kind of center of our property. Um, there was a series of, of, of ag fields that they've been, the farmer has been slowly, uh, turning those over to us, it, it's it's um, it's a lot. It's very dark soil, which is great, but it stays wet when he's going in and and to plant this time. I mean, they're going to start planting pretty soon, so a lot of times those fields are are a little too wet when they go to plant. 
Um, and then some of the other ag, uh, some of the other food plots, we've expanded the size. So by expanding the size, we have met the demand of our deer density. Because if you plant, if you're in a relatively high deer density, which might be over, if it's over, I think like the somewhat the normal average is maybe 20 to 40 deer per square, per square mile. If you're over 50, 60, 75, going towards 100 per square mile, and you plant food plots, you you need some size to it. Because if not, the deer are just going to wipe it out very, very, very quickly, depending on what you plant. Um, so a lot of our food plots, we have expanded the size. And um, we're going to try a mix this year, a warm season mix, to see if we have some better results. We've had some problems for a while of keeping the deer out of soybeans so that they can become browse tolerant. You know, some of the forage beans that you can buy nowadays that grow very viney Mm -hmm. and grow very tall, they need to get about knee high or maybe about thigh high to become somewhat browse tolerant, which means the deer can snip them off and they'll grow back. But if they go in there and hammer them when they're sprouting, you know, under a foot, they're going to, they won't kill the plant probably, but it's going to, it's going to be stunted and it's going to grow wider, but it's not going to really grow tall and it's not going to fill out. So we use some various management practices to really keep the deer at bay for a couple of weeks before this, you know, whether it's sun hemp or soybeans to grow and to become browse tolerant. But over the course of maybe about five years, the deer have really, you know, just like everything else. Uh, you, you can educate deer and they realize those tactics of roping off the food plot or using melorganite uh, fertilizer um, or using even human scent. I mean, we would take dryer sheets and put them around the around the rope of the fire around the rope on the food plots just to try to keep them bay and then to take it down once the food plot was established. Um, so in what I see every year is that if 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 our farmers, if our farmer on our property or the surrounding farmers, if they plant cotton, for instance, the deer are going to hammer our warm season food plots much more than if they planted peanuts, soybeans, or corn, because those would be established first before our food plots probably, and they'll feed on those, and that'll help uh, deter some of the pressure on our food plots. Um, but food plots. Or in my opinion, and absolutely, it's a key if you can do it for diversity. It's all about diversity. I mean, I know I talked about a minute or a while ago about if I had, if I had, to, if I had to make a choice between prescribed fire or planting food plots, I would do prescribed fire. However, food plots give you that diversity, and food plots allow me to be able to have success in those burn sites because they're going to those uh, food plots. And that's why, like – I'll sit on food plots early season, you know, when they're fresh and deer aren't used to hunters yet, or I'll sit them on very, very late season. But the way I hunt food plots during the, during the meat of the season is really nowhere near them. Um, I'll use a destination food plot or maybe that food plot system hub that we have on our property, which if anyone is looking at, if they can design their property or they're maybe looking at, doing a clear cut site, maybe, maybe clear cutting on the somewhat centered on your property and then converting that site to, to, you know, food plots, stomp it, convert it to food plots. So you have a hub on your property that's centered and sure you can hunt on it, 
you know, in the evenings, but I exploit those food plots as destinations by, you know, you got to think, well, how many deer are using those food plots or ag fields at night? It's probably the majority deer in that area or, or within that food plot area throughout the night. You know, deer, whitetails are very social animals, whether they're feeding or just making sign, whatever they're doing, they're very social. So a lot of my morning hunts will be planned of, you know, being outside of a pine thicket or a thicket, knowing that they bed in there and that they're going to that destination food plot. It could be a couple thousand yards or maybe a quarter mile away, but I'll cut them off going to or from that uh, food plot. So that's how, you know, I use the food plots a lot to hunt. It's really just, I don't sit on them, but I, you know, catch them, hunt them going to and from. Yeah. You mentioned, um, sun hemp and that's something I have zero experience with, but I, but I've seen it kind of popping up more and more over recent years, especially down South. Can you, can you fill me in on how you're using sun hemp? Um, what your experience has been with that so far? Yeah. So sun hemp is a fairly new on the food plot deer management scene. I think it first came on the scene as far as, um, cattle, like, like cows. It's originally from India it's a legume, um, and you have to re- – it's really – it thrives in the south because you have to – you you really need to be, I think, in a, a much lower it, – it's a, it's, it's a subtropical legume, um, and it's – I think it's – I think that either, either, either Dr. Craig Harper or maybe the NDA did a study on it. It's, it's, it's about 30% crude protein, which is getting up there with soybeans. Um, it, it can grow anywhere from four to eight feet tall and grow very thick. I mean, it can grow about an inch a day. It grows very quickly. Uh, it's excellent for cover crop. If you want, that's how a lot of farmers were originally using it as a cover crop. Um, it's, it's it doesn't drain on your soil like like corn for for instance we don't plant much corn corn is very demanding on your soil uh it strips of nutrients um sun hemp is actually a, a, a soil builder it's loaded with uh, nitrogen you just you know mow it down after it's dead in the season let it decompose back into the back to the soil uh deer love the the young leaves on the plants um it's tender and they'll eat the and they'll eat the the um the main stem too. At a certain point after it gets a little tall, maybe five, six feet tall, the stems do become a little fibrous and they won't eat it. Um, but they'll eat the new leaves and the and the the and the best parts about it is it is that you can cut it. You can bush hog it, you can uh, hit it with a um a bush hog and it'll grow back, it'll sprout back. Um, as long, you know, as long as you're still in that growing season. So for, uh, for us, it's all the way to the first of November. Um, so I like to plant a whole field of it and then just mow some shooting lanes or use it for, um, you know, a border on your food plot, especially if you have somewhat of a, of a low, a low growing plant in your food plot, plant that around your border. It's very thick, very dense, has loaded with protein. Yeah, I love having those those screening elements to just provide that extra safety around a feeding area like that. That's just so so useful. Uh, Mark, I want to I want to pivot a little bit. 
Um, I heard about timber, fire, food. I want to talk a little bit about the future of this of this place um, because I think a lot of times when it comes to land management and owning land or working land, uh, I think I think the idea of legacy starts to creep in. I think for a lot of us, um, and when you look at the future of this place that you've put so much time into, so much energy, so many of your hopes and dreams. What do you what do you envision for the future? What do you hope for the future? Um, what do you think that looks like? What I hope for the future is that we can, um, and this is something that we're working on now, is developing a a forestry a forestry management plan to be able to maintain the farm for the next ge- generation. Um. And, you know, that's something that my father has talked about many times to me. He's a retired CPA, and he saw a lot in his career. Uh, he had a lot of clients that own land, um, own farms or timber tracks like this or hunting ground. And he always told me that a lot of times uh, land or real estate just does, does not survive the, the grandkids. You know, it'll it'll transfer down to the kids and they'll get along. But when it gets down to the grandkids, a lot of times at that point, you'll have some differences of opinions or uses or everyone's not really using the property. And it's hard for the farm to stay, you know, without people wanting to sell it. So the plan, this is something that we've been working on. I've been trying to take over more with forestry work is to have a true uh force management plan and this 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 kind of ties right back into you know diversifying your land and constantly be cutting and 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 you know so you so you avoid that monoculture but you know if someone has merchantable timber on their property they should really again connect with a forester or someone in the know to be able to come up with a standing inventory value of your marshable timber, whether it's pine trees or hardwoods. Well, you know, if there's a plan to sell it one day, you should have a, a, a rough estimate about the current value of your inventory um, of your timber crop and then project out um, what you what you should be getting for it when you go to sell, you know, five years down the road, 10 years, and then sort of map out, you know, five years from now, what are we going to clear cut? What are we going to thin? How much should we be? selling at that point and then you start to kind of develop a plan to where you've you're you're projecting out the future income to be able to cover the cost of opera owning and operating the farm um, and that's something we are working on now to try to uh, maintain that keep the farm in the family and then also do everything we can to be better land stewards to, to, to be better conservationists. Cause I mean, every, everything what we're talking about today, Mark is about, you know, being a good land steward and being a good conservationist. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do is to kill big giant bucks, but there's more to it than that. I mean, I, I'm one of the projects I'm doing now is kind of, you know, ongoing long, you know, long game projects will be to continue to work on a Bob white quail. We do have many, several coveys, wild coveys on our property, and then also the Eastern wild turkey. Um, I mean, as far as legacy, I would love to be able to build the property up 
with a healthy turkey population because right now i mean it, it's it's you know it's not headline news right now but the eastern wild turkey the population has been dwindling for oh, well over a decade and it's not something that's going to get better overnight that's going to the change is going to come from landowners at least in the southeast and that's you know it's, it's not that not the work's not being done on public land but when i say that it's just because most of the southeast is private land um and so, um, you know, if that's that's something with a legacy, I would love I would love to change. Yeah. Now, speaking of speaking of private land legacy opportunities, another thing uh, that I, I understand you guys have done is place a significant portion of the property into a conservation easement. Is that is that right? Did you guys do that? And can you can you describe to me, you know, or for others maybe that aren't familiar, what that means and why you guys decide to do that? Yeah, so a conservation easement um, is something that, um, if, if anyone's interested, I would definitely suggest you talk with your uh, accountant, your CPA, or maybe attorney about it. But it, it basically, you're putting a section of property, your whole property or a section of it, into a conservation easement to where no one, you, the current owner, or any you know owners down the road, can can develop it. They can't carve off a a home site by the highway and sell it, or they can't put multiple houses. There are some different things that you can put on the property, you know, like a skinning shed or a tractor shed, stuff like that, but it's protecting it from being developed. Um, and there, there are tax benefits from it. You do get a very, a very, very nice uh, tax break from it. So a lot of people are, are doing that. We're actually looking at something that had relatively recently has been on my radar as far as carbon credits. Um, You know, wetland credits have been, you know, uh, wetland mitigation mitigation credits have been something for a long time now, but carbon credits are at least somewhat new to me, and we will be diving in that pretty soon. Um, And that's tied into not cutting trees. So I'm, I'm not I can't really speak on that, but that's something that we are going to look into. So the so the idea with that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that would be basically getting financial incentives to keep trees on the ground. Uh, and people will es- essentially incentivize you, pay you to do that as, as a way to offset carbon that they're using in some other way. And you're keeping carbon in there by not cutting the trees in certain places. That's that's the idea with carbon credits, right? At a high that's level. correct. Yeah. That's my that's my understanding. And I you know, it makes sense, but at the same time, as you know, we're there's certain stands where we're not going to cut. I mean, we know we're not, we're not going to cut them. We're not going to cut them before ten years, let's say, or five years. So I'd, but that's just something we got to dive into. But yeah, yeah it, it, it's something to it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Now back to the conservation easement. Why did you guys? I mean, I can make assumptions, but why did you guys decide that was something you wanted to do? Because uh, I, I know it's no small decision saying that, you know, okay, we are not going to develop this. We're not going to, you know, parcel it off. This is this is going to be protected in perpetuity as a somewhat intact piece of undeveloped uh, habitat from here on out. What was what was that decision making process like for you and the family? It was mostly my father at the time, but he, you know, he wanted to protect the farm. Uh, you know, he. um my father spent a lot of time, um, especially after he retired, and, and he's put a lot of 
heart and soul in the property. And so I, I think for him, it was probably to secure it for the next generation and, you know, to uh, try to, you know, secure our legacy on, on the land so that we're not, you know, it doesn't, you know, end up becoming, um, you know, something else being developed. I mean, it's, it's just protecting everything that we're putting into it for the next property owner. I mean, it's, that's something that can be a little different to think about, you know, when, if you, if you, you know, I mean, I, I know what it's like when you lease land and you're putting management or you're doing some work into a lease land, if you're a hunting club, because you don't know, you know, if you're, if, if you're leasing land, it's probably, whether it's written or verbal, probably a 12 month deal. So you don't know what you're doing. I mean, you're passing up on bucks, letting bucks walk, shooting does, maybe doing some habitat type work on a, on a low level, but you don't know if things are going to change for the next calendar year. Um, but for the, you know, for, but, but for private land, it's just something to, I think, protect and just to secure that everything we're, we're doing will remain in the land for the next owner. Yeah. So you, you've got a couple of young kids yourself. What's, what's all this, how has that changed things for you? If at all, when you look at <laughs> the work you're doing, when you look at the future of this place, uh, how has, how has kids factored into how you approach land management and, and any of this kind of stuff now? Um, a lot, tremendously. Um, I mean, I can, it's, it's funny, you know, thinking back about, you know, years ago, listening to, to your podcast when y'all were expecting and before you had kids <laughs> and after kids, yeah. it's, you know, very similar. I mean, you know, I, I'd mentioned before, but about some hunters picking and choosing when they hunt. I mean, you know, even when I was married but before kids, um, unless we had some kind of social engagement, I could hunt when I wanted to. So now it's, it's, you know, picking and choosing the best times to, to, you know, between work and family, um, to go up there, uh, year round to hunt or do habitat work. Um, the hunting aspect, you know, I, I have brought my kids a couple times to hunt, um, but not with, you know, a firearm. I haven't shot a firearm around them. They're two and five, so not quite old enough, I think, to be around them yet, uh, pretty soon. Um, we've sat in the stand a couple times just without a gun or, or a bow. Um, but this time of year is a good time to bring the kids. I, I, I've been bringing both of them for a couple of years now to shed hunt, look for antlers. Um, and that's a, that's, that's the prime time when I do most of my scouting is, is, is looking for sheds before that green up, because you can really see, you can see much, so much, so much more of the land, how deer are using it. Um, uh, but yeah, some of the habitat work, I'm able to bring the kids up and, 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 um, and, 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 and do some of the stuff with, so it's, um, um, it, it's caused me to do a lot of work from home as far as planning, you know, planning hmm. out, uh, and maybe, um, um, you know, delegating some of the work to other people that can do it. <laughs> whether it's my, my father that's now retired or one of my brothers to be able to, to be able to do it. But I, you know, to, to answer your question uh, very quickly would probably be, it's caused me to be more focused on time management because you know, this work in the back 40 that you spend half the time when you go to your farm, fixing stuff, <laughs> looking for stuff. Yes. You go there and, you know, between the farmhouse and the tractor shed, you know, things get moved around. Things don't get put back where they were. 
you're looking for things, things break. Um, I mean, we, we, we went up in February to do a control burn and it, it, we, we had the weather conditions, we, we had the burn permit, everything aligned, and then our tractor broke down. And we spent the better part of the day fixing it. It was some kind of wire that shorted underneath, but we couldn't burn. And that was a, that was, that was a heartbreaker because we, because it was a bust for the day. And that time of year, they really couldn't, with, with the tractor down, we couldn't do much else. But if we were to burn, Without a tractor, with a harrow in the back, if that fire got loose or crossed the cut fire break, it, there could be some problems. So it, it's just, um, and and that goes back to what I said earlier: is just to take things slow. Um, we didn't know really, we didn't know what we were doing in the beginning, so we had to take things slow. I mean, I, I think I told you we did take things slow, but we had to because we didn't know what we were doing. You know, it was a big learning curve, and so. Um, there's nothing wrong with taking things slow, you know, um, breathe, let, let the property develop on its own. And then over that time period, you'll, you'll learn how deer use the landscape, how they use it, what kind of deer density you have. And then you'll be able to manipulate the land based on what the wildlife needs. Yeah. If you, if you had a little piece of paper. Like, like the little piece of paper that you find inside of a fortune cookie. And if you could write something on that little piece of paper, stuff it into a fortune cookie and give it to yourself back in 2006, when you and the family were going to begin this land management project, what message do you wish you could have written on that little piece of paper to read back then? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question, Mark. I would. It could be a longer piece of paper if you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably, uh, one thing would just be don't sweat the small stuff. There's going to be a lot of failures, whether it's you're trying to work the land or hunting failures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wildlife is a renewable resource. And I'm not saying that lightly. For whitetails and turkey and quail, everything else, but it's a renewable resource, and just take your time with it, um, and just don't sweat the small stuff because there's going to be a lot of failures. But that's that's how you learn. Um, that's how you get to to become a better hunter, and then to um, I, I would I've thought about this this second point many times is I look back on some land features like, like pine thickets that we had some new, you know, new thickets that were planted pine trees that were good, tight, you know, thick, nasty bedding sites that I did not exploit. I did not hunt. I, I, I was focused on other, other spots and just, uh, not let those, I mean, hunt the areas, hunt those areas and don't, you know, don't, don't don't just let those grow up, and because you know some of those pine thickets, you 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 have a window to hunt them, um, and at a certain point, they deer stop bedding in them. Um, but um, I, I would, if I could do things over again, I would probably say to get off and hunt mobily a lot. I should have done that a lot a lot quicker, a well, lot quicker. Better late than never. <laughs> that was a turning point for me as a hunter. I think probably I can look back on pinpoint that at 2015. Yeah. When that changed. Yeah. I've certainly had similar experiences too. Well, Mark, uh, 
I really enjoy this. It's 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 always it's always a kick for me just to get to hear about these different places and different ways people are doing this and having fun and learning about the land and figuring out how to hunt and improve their spots. And uh, your story down there in South Carolina is a perfect example of that. So where, where can people go if they want to learn more about what you're doing? I know you've got a website and some different things. Is there anything that you'd point folks to if they want to follow along more with what you're up to? Yes. Um, they can follow me. They can find me on Instagram. It's at Mark Haslam. Um, my Instagram has really, it's, it's been, it's pretty much just been, I've been showcasing what I've been doing the farm and hunting stuff, habitat work for a number of years now. And, uh, because I was, and then, you know, I'd, about a year ago, the beginning of last year, 21, I, I've been sitting on the idea for a while, but I finally launched a, a website, southeastwhitetail.com, um, just to just to show showcase what I'm doing at the farm. And and, and I think I, I, I want to highlight some of the stuff in the southeast because uh, I think just so much of the hunting content out there is driven a lot towards the Midwest. And mm-hmm. some of that stuff, you know we can definitely use down here, but a lot of it we can't. And a lot of it is just, it, it it's, you know, it's, we've got uh, a different, different terrain and different deer herds. And so I wanted to really showcase, you know, what, what I'm doing. And um, so that's where people can find me. Awesome. Well, I would definitely recommend people check that out. And uh, Mark, thank you for your time. It's fun. Well, thanks for having me on Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks let's, for talking with me. Let's do it again soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. And that is it. Thanks all for tuning in. I appreciate it. It's been a fun chat. I'm, uh, I've been just taking a little bit of time peering back behind the house, watching turkeys strutting around. So, uh, it's spring. It's a great time of year to be out there working the land, working food plots, hanging stands, or like I mentioned, turkey hunting. So hope you're out there and having a good time. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge-to-edge reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.